0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Waisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun.
0: And this was a Damn Interesting Week.
2: So let's get started with our first link. First link. From the Guardian, listen, Lego tried their best, (laughs) but they have, in fact, abandoned an effort to make bricks from recycled plastic bottles. They tried to make it work. It just couldn't. So pour one out for them, but also don't pour one out for them because stepping on a Lego is a special kind of help. Right, Right, right. Yeah. Now, this Danish company makes billions of Lego pieces a year, and in 2021 began researching a potential transition to recycled polyethylene terephthalate, or PETs, from acrylonitrile butadiene styrene, or ABS. (laughs) Mm. Okay, so that needs about two kilograms of petroleum to make one kilogram Mm. of plastic. You can see the math already doesn't work out great. But Tim Brooks, LEGO's head of sustainability, referred to how the non-oil-based material was softer and demanded extra ingredients for durability, as well as greater energy for processing and drying. And not only that, the level of disruption to the manufacturing environment was such that we needed to change everything in our factories Mm -hmm. to scale up recycled PETs. So after all that, the carbon footprint would have been way higher. And yeah, he's quoted as saying, this is disappointing. Now, the company said in 2021 it had more than 150 people working on sustainability, but LEGO's chief executive, Niels Christensen, told the Financial Times the Toymaker tested hundreds and hundreds of materials, but could not find a magic material to solve sustainability issues. So what are they going to do instead? Well, they're going to aim to make part of each ABS more sustainable by incorporating more bio-based and recycled material. So they're going to triple their spending on sustainability to about $3 billion a year. Wow. And they're promising not to pass on these higher costs to consumers, which, you know, as far as a failure goes, could have been worse. (laughs) Right,
1: and Lego, because Legos are already expensive.
2: (laughs) It's true. Yeah, well, and there's a lot of stuff like that where, like,
0: Recycling makes you feel good, but like something like 80 percent of recycled material just ends up in the landfill anyway. And you're looking at all the extra trucks on the road to pick up the recycling. It's like you meant well, but you actually didn't help the problem at all.
2: Right, like I appreciate them owning up and saying, "Hey, we got to pivot and take a loss here," as opposed to continuing to perform sustainability, right. which is way more damaging going forward. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll give them credit for that at least. <laughs> I mean, they're Legos. What are you going to do? Yeah. War on Legos? No. Nah. <laughs> no
0: one. No one takes on Legos.
2: Nobody works. That's like that. being against Mister Rogers. It's just a bad move. You can't. <laughs> It is, but, you know, war on Disney has already happened.
0: That
1: veil yeah, has been Yeah, but, pierced. I mean, not to, you know, justify any of the Florida crap, but Disney's not exactly known for...
2: Wholesomeness?
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ooh, that's another podcast for another time.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> All right, next link.
3: Next, next link. link. This article comes to us from The Guardian, and it's a little bit spicy, <laughs> The title is They Kill Their Own Parents, Children, and Neighbors. Now, life is even worse for the vicious alpine marmot.
2: Oh, (laughs) man. You had me in the first half, not gonna lie.
3: Yeah, yeah. So this is basically about some of the changes that have been occurring in the dynamics of alpine marmots who are already pretty savage. So the ecologist Christoph Bonenfant strides down the mountainside, a metal cage strapped to his back. His cargo is four kilograms of befuddled alpine marmot, a mountain (laughs) rodent admired by hikers, and the star of a beloved French ad for Milka Chocolate. (laughs) The creature's cuddly reputation, however, belies a vicious reality. The life of an alpine marmot is a never-ending bloody battle for dominance. Boninfant's colleague Rebecca Garcia says they are mega violent. <laughs> and now the climate crisis is making their fight for survival in the Alps more deadly than ever. Hmm. Together, Garcia and Boninfont have 30 minutes to bring the marmot down from the mountain, anesthetize it, measure it, take samples of blood, hair, and droppings, revive it, and return it to the site where it was captured, all while avoiding a set of teeth capable of severing a human finger. (gasps) The clock is ticking. A marmot can lose its territory in less than an hour. Oh, wow. When they finish, the marmot will return to its place in a cycle of what Boninfont calls despotic reproduction.
2: (laughs) So, like Elon Musk's family. Yeah. <laughs> <pretty much.
3: laughs> the rodents live in family groups with one dominant couple and a clutch of subordinate offspring who help with raising young and providing much needed body warmth during the long winter hibernation. Only the dominant pair may reproduce. They bully the other family members into sterility, the youngster's stress (laughs) hormones maintained at too high a level to bear young of their own. Wow. And if a subordinate of either sex wishes to reproduce, they must leave their family group and challenge another dominant marmot for its territory or kill their parents. (laughs) The team calls this war for dominance Game of Burrows. (laughs) out on patrol, Garcia points out a far-flung territory where a brother and sister shacked up and established a new dynasty last year. We call them the Lannisters, she says. (laughs) (laughs) Data collected from the La Grande Saussure since the project began in 1990 has provided much of what we know today about the Alpine Marmot and its despotic ways. It has also revealed that the rapidly warming climate of the Alps is making each season of the Game of Burrows more bloodthirsty than the last. Conflicts are increasing, and subordinates are leaving their family groups earlier, leading to more fights for dominance. Marmots are suffering from the same scourge as the nearby ski resorts, not enough snow. Families rely on a thick layer to insulate their burrows, where they spend half the year in hibernation. As snow cover gets thinner, the burrows get colder, making marmot pups less likely to survive the winter, even with the family's body warmth to help them. Today, baby marmots are as likely to die in large family groups as the young of a single dominant couple, Boninfant says. That means there are fewer incentives for subordinates to remain loyal. They'll take their chances directly rather than staying in the family group, he says. The consequences are that we see social structures and family groups which are less stable over time. And this rise in changeover in dominant couples leads to increased infanticides of the marmot pups that do survive the winter. And while marmots are not classed as endangered, the cycle is causing the population to steadily drop by 4% a year. Other climate-related changes act as threat multipliers for the rodents too. Marmots require wide-open prairie spaces to alert their family members to the threat of approaching predators. As the Alps warm, the tree line is stalking higher up the mountainside, shrinking their territory. Mm. The Alps are warming at a faster rate than much of the planet and provide some of the starkest images of the climate emergency. Glaciers are retreating and rock faces are cracking and tumbling after years of persistent drought. If the Alps are the climate sentinels of Europe, marmots are one of the sentinels of the Alps, demonstrating how a species with a complex social structure can see its life quickly transform as a result of human-induced global heating. Its life is becoming more nasty, brutish, and short. At Le Grande Sacier Laboratory, the scientists' examination of their charge is done, and he is left to come to his senses in the chalet toilet. He must be fully <laughs> alert, Percia says, by the time he is returned to his territory on the Alpine Slopes. Gradually, the rodent awakes. Garcia secures him in the backpack cage and sets out across the valley, crossing a mountain stream and ascending to the small patch of prairie. The creature is charged with defending.
0: That's pretty wild that like, you know, all they're trying to do is study these guys, but they have like literally half an hour. Otherwise, they've messed up the whole social structure of the area
3: yeah I mean, it just moves so fast it it really is like Game of Thrones on speed,
2: yeah yeah <laughs> I mean, it's hard not to think that they're doing this to themselves like quite literally, mm-hmm. like, y'all want to be around, yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: be a little more social or die out one of
3: the two. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I feel like there's a really valuable incel lesson here.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it'll force evolution towards new social developments for the marmots on a a whole. Who knows?
0: We're helping them. (laughs)
3: Yeah, (laughs) That's definitely what we're doing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link.
1: Okay, from Atlas Obscura. Uneven gravity makes you weigh more... In Illinois than in Indiana.
0: Rude. Oh, uh-huh.
1: a number. <laughs> a number of factors cause you to be lighter or heavier in different parts of the world. Huh. Ah, what a weird place this planet is. But especially <laughs> in southern Illinois, or yep. at least according to a map of gravitational anomalies, amongst other things. So we might think of gravity as something uniform. Apparently, it's not. The strength of gravity varies across the Earth, and that's due to a combination of factors. Okay, first. There's the latitudinal effect. The Earth is not perfectly round because it's flat, (laughs) (laughs) but it is flatter near to and flattest at the poles Mm. and bulges more towards and most along the equator. As a result, the distance from the Earth's center to sea level is 13 miles greater at the equator than at the poles. Mm. So Newton's apple and you weigh 0.5% more at the poles than at the equator. Secondly, there's the rotational effect. The difference in gravity between the poles and the equator is only partly due to gravity itself. It's also caused by the fact that the Earth spins faster at the equator. Mm -hmm. Then there's the altitudinal effect. Earth's gravitational pull depends on your distance from its center. So gravity diminishes with altitude, but again, with a fairly limited effect. If you're, say, 16,000 feet up the mountains, you weigh 99.84% of what the scales would say at sea level.
3: Hmm. Hmm.
1: So fourth differentiator, the tidal pull of the moon and sun. Although this has a visible, repetitive, and significant effect, the ebb and flow of the sea levels, right? The variation this causes in the Earth's gravity is still very small. So I guess weigh yourself on a new moon. Right, right. Lose that's the quickly and. least. <laughs> yeah. The final factor, and the one that's the most important here, is the area's geological makeup. The density of certain rock types has an effect on the force of gravity. Hmm. Areas with higher subsurface rock density have higher than average gravity, and vice versa.
0: That counts as Texas. We're nothing but limestone here, so I'm heavier in Texas. That yep, I would be yep. in some place with dirt instead of rock.
1: All right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> By 0.05, but uh, you know, it's enough. Mountains increase gravitational density and ocean trenches decrease it. While the first four factors can be compensated for mathematically, it's the local geology which produces random gravity anomalies. Hmm. The Bouguer, B-O-U-G-U-E-R, but pronounced Bouguer gravity anomaly is named after French scientist Pierre Smith, Pierre (laughs) Bouguet, a prodigy who succeeded his father as a professor of hydrography at the tender age of 16. Mm. What? No pressure. And among (laughs) his many discoveries was the fact that small regional variations in the Earth's gravity field could be related to varying density of subsurface rocks. The values on the map are expressed in milligals. So uh, one thousandth of a gal, short for Galileo, which is just a unit of gravity, hmm. which means Newton's apples weigh more in southern Illinois, but a bit less in central Indiana in large parts of Ohio.
0: Well, the good news is I wasn't going to go to southern Illinois, Indiana or Ohio <laughs> So I don't have to worry about that. And I will just choose not to look at the map for Texas and then I'll remain ignorant and it's fine.
2: (laughs) Does that mean that we can pile up certain amounts of rock to create like zero gravity theme parks?
1: Mm, It would be more like extra Extra gravity. gravity. You'd have to pull out all of that. All of that rocks would have to be removed.
2: So bouncy houses. (laughs) Are those like inflatable sumo costumes? Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. Listen,
2: every point counts. Don't. Like... <laughs> <right>. I mean, <laughs>
0: these
1: gravitational anomalies cause seas to bulge and can even throw pendulum clocks out of sync. Yeah. So they can have an effect. And I imagine if you are measuring, say, tons of things, those small percentages <laughs> might add up.
0: So there's like a merchant opportunity here where if I'm selling something by weight... I need to, like, make sure to buy it in the lightweight place and sell it in Uh the heavy place.
1: Go sell it Uh in Chicago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh Right. Wow. Gravity
3: arbitrage.
0: Exactly.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link.
0: All right. This next one is from Ars Technica, and it's called A Revelation About Trees is Messing with Climate Calculations. Oh, dear. And the title's not wrong. It is a revelation about trees, but really it's a revelation about clouds, which are, according to the article, the biggest source of uncertainty in climate modeling. Oh. Because on the one hand, cloud cover in warm parts of the planet can reflect light from the sun and have a cooling effect. But clouds in cold parts of the world can trap heat beneath them and lead to greater warming. And the balance of these two things is potentially changed by the question of what has seeded the cloud. Right now on Earth, about half of our cloud cover comes from relatively large particles like sand, salt, smoke and dust, while the other half are nucleated around vapors released by either living things or machines, including things like sulfur dioxide from burning fossil fuels. And of course, we've talked about sulfur dioxide a few times on this podcast, specifically the idea that we might deliberately seed the atmosphere with huge amounts of sulfur dioxide in order to combat climate change. And there are definitely problems with this idea, but there are also people saying we have to consider all options if the only alternative is we die, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But
0: for Lubna Dada, a researcher at CERN who studies how aerosols affect the climate, the most important question is whether we're even right about cloud cover to begin with. So she's been running experiments in a 7,000-gallon stainless steel chamber at CERN known as the Cloud Chamber which stands for Cosmics Leaving Outdoor Droplets, with the U being stolen from the second letter of outdoor for what I assume are (laughs) obvious reasons. Dada says one of the things that we actually don't know a lot about and have been taking for granted in our climate models is what cloud cover actually looked like in pre-industrial times. So they decided to try to recreate the atmosphere as it would exist above a pristine forest on a pristine planet. Because, of course, atmosphere, you share it, right? You burn something over here, it goes over the other areas. And that's relevant because trees are known to release several chemicals that seed clouds, including isoprene and monoterpenes. So they started injecting different combinations of these tree chemicals into the chamber to see what would happen. And as expected, a higher concentration of isoprene and monoterpenes in the air did generate more clouds. But the real breakthrough came when they started messing with the levels of sesquiterpenes, which are much rarer than the first two classes of vapors and were only discovered in 2010 because the testing equipment finally got sensitive enough to notice them.
1: They are my favorite terpenes.
0: Exactly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And what they found was it's apparently all about the sesquiterpenes. A mixture containing just 2% sesquiterpenes generated twice as many clouds, and they formed faster than when isoprene and monoterpenes were used alone. And realistically, we don't even know if this is good news or bad news, because on the one hand, it seems to indicate that when we deforest an area and put a bunch of pollutants into the air, it may actually be a wash for cloud formation because it just means there's something different seeding the clouds than there were before. At the same time, however, other research has shown that for many plants, heat stress, extreme weather and droughts can cause the plants to actively release more of these cloud seeding chemicals, which makes sense for them because they're like, hey, the climate's too hot. Let's generate some more clouds for ourselves. But it may also mean that when we look at the planet as a whole, rising temperatures worldwide could naturally lead to way more stuff in the air than we could ever deliver with a sulfur dioxide plane. And we may, in fact, have the problem completely backwards, where we're looking at much more of a heat getting trapped by clouds rather than a heat reflecting off a scenario. The bottom line is we don't know. But Dada is trying to change that. Her next study will be combining tree emissions with human emissions to see how they affect each other. One thing the article does note is that sulfur dioxide doesn't smell very good. It's basically that (laughs) rotten egg smell. But isoprene, monoterpenes, and sesquiterpenes all smell great. With variations on woody, spicy, and citrusy. It's basically the reason humans love being in the forest, is these chemicals. So, you know, if our option is planes full of sulfur dioxide or plant a bunch of trees, clearly planting a bunch of trees is probably (laughs) going to be more efficient. But also, we have the opportunity to do that, and we're not doing it. So, who knows? Of course we're not
1: too practical <laughs> exactly yeah
3: mm-hmm. i mean why would you plant trees when you could fly a plane that's much yeah, it is cooler. it's true and we have to consider
0: the cool factor of any solution
2: <laughs> next link next, next link. link all right yale environment 360 has a very eye-opening piece namely Evidence mounts on toxic pollution from tires. Yes, mm. folks. Researchers are only beginning to uncover the toxic cocktail of chemicals, microplastics, and heavy metals hidden in car and truck tires. Hmm. File this under stuff we probably should have known, but yeah for decades we have not figured this out. And it points to a study specifically in West Coast streams, a mysterious incident of Whenever it rained, large numbers of spawning coho salmon were just dying. So, this 2020 paper called out a chemical called 6PPD that is added to tires to prevent cracking and degradation. When 6PPD, which occurs in tire dust, is exposed to ground level ozone, it transforms into multiple other chemicals, including hmm. quinone or 6PPDQ. And this compound is acutely toxic to 4 out of 11 tested fish species. So, okay, mystery solved, but problem not, (laughs) because Mm -hmm. uh, the chemical continues to be used by all major tire manufacturers. And we have yet to study the impact of 6-PPDQ on human health, but we have detected it in the urine of children. Adults yep. and pregnant women in South China.
1: Right, like to test all of the like Formula One race car people that work.
2: They oh, just man. melt
1: through those tires daily. Yep. I'm sure mm-hmm. those chemicals are just all in them.
2: Mm-hmm. I would be so curious to see if there's like, you know, in the NFL, we got a lot of brain damage. Like, mm-hmm. What is the toxic tire pollutant concentration in Formula One pit crew? Yeah, mm-hmm. there's, there's a paper there for someone who's got the grant money. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that has kind of started to translate into calls for regulatory action. For example, last month. The legal nonprofit Earth Justice, on behalf of the fishing industry, filed a notice of intent to sue tire manufacturers for violating the Endangered Species Act by using 6PPD. And a coalition of Indian tribes recently called on the EPA to ban use of the chemical. Quote, We have watched as the species have declined to the point of almost certain extinction. That's a quote from the up tribal council in a statement.
1: Yeah, but from what I know of American history, uh, we don't care about what he has to
2: Yeah. <laughs> oh, what are you talking
0: about? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was going to justify it by saying coho salmon are jerks, so it's fine. Like, just you know, <laughs>
2: emotionally and morally justify making them <laughs> They're just like the marmots, man. They got it coming, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they need to learn how to live with these chemicals. That's on them. Well, we may all have to learn to live with these chemicals because the parsing, just determining and making the distinction that 6PPD and 6PPDQ existed, that's just the beginning of a huge global campaign to understand the toxic cocktail of organic chemicals hiding in tires and to a lesser extent brakes, which are basically like mini tires within the car. Right. But tire rubber contains over 400 chemicals and compounds. Many of them are carcinogenic. And they may seem benign. Like we used to have an advertising campaign that used to feature babies and tires. <laughs> I know that like gardeners have been repurposing tires as planters up oh, until recently. Right, but think when... about yeah, that. They,
1: I've seen them used as artificial reefs, which is the worst idea oh, ever.
2: Oh. Absolutely. And yeah, it's a problem because 2 billion tires globally are sold each year with the market expected to reach 3.4 billion a year by 2030, which is not that far off. And 78% of ocean microplastics, yeah, it's synthetic tire rubber. And that's Mm. according to a report from the Pew Charitable Trust. Now, regulators are playing catch up in Europe, a standard that is to be implemented in 2025, known as Euro 7, will regulate not only tailpipe emissions, but also emissions from tires and brakes. And our version of Europe here in the U.S., California, has (laughs) passed a rule requiring tire makers to declare an alternative to 6 PPDQ by 2024. (laughs) And yeah, tire companies, they are seeking alternatives. Ten of the world's largest tire manufacturers have formed the Tire Industry Project to develop a holistic approach to better understand and promote action on the mitigation of tire pollution, according to that overwrought boilerplate. The group has committed to search for ways to redesign tires to reduce or eliminate emissions. But listen, there is some hope here. The Tire Collective, which is a clean tech startup based in the UK, they've developed something called an electrostatic plate that affixes to each of a car's tires. And the plates remove up to 60% of particles emitted by both tires and brakes. They store them in a cartridge attached to the device, and then the particles can be reused in other applications, including new tires. Hey, hey.
1: I was promised at this point in time in my life, we'd have hover cars by now.
0: Yeah, we <laughs> didn't plan to be using tires at all. That's the real problem. That's if we could problem. just go airborne, I'm sure there'd be no side effects from that.
1: None, none. You know, <laughs> this won't affect avian
2: populations at all, <laughs> right?
1: Yeah, no problem. No problem.
2: All right, next link.
1: Next Next link.
3: link. This article comes to us from sciencealert.com. We may have just found evidence of a cosmic string, a crease in the universe.
2: (gasps) A wrinkle in time? (laughs) Yeah.
3: (laughs) So I don't know how it interacts with time per se. They don't really talk about that. We're more focused on the space part, but it is a space time continuum. So Feel free to let your imagination run wild. Yeah, it will. (laughs) A strange pair of galaxies several billion light years away could be evidence of a hypothetical quote unquote crease in the universe's fabric known as a cosmic string. According to an analysis of the properties of the pair, the two galaxies may not be distinct objects, but a duplicate image caused by a trick of the light. And the reason the light is duplicated could be because of a scar in the space between us and the galaxy, creating a gravitational lens. Hmm. Cosmic strings are like tiny, one-dimensional rinks or cracks through the fields of the universe thought to have been created at the very dawn of time, as reality stretched and then froze into place. These theoretical topological defects are estimated to be no wider than a proton, may extend Hmm. the entire breadth of the universe and are thought to be incredibly dense and massive. Theory suggests that they may very well be real, but we haven't seen much physical evidence of them.
0: Well, and like, if you fly through it, is it like going through a black hole? Like, do you die? I don't understand yeah, like, it what it cut means. Yeah, it spaceship in half? Like, yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, so Margarita Safanova of the Indian Institute of Astrophysics focused their paper on the strongest cosmic string signature, a galaxy pair named SDSSJ110429.61 plus 233150.3 or (laughs) SDSSJ110429 for short.
1: Wow, they named that after Elon's child? That's weird.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So I'll just call it SDS. So SDS could just be a normal pair of galaxies. Another explanation when we see galaxies very close together and looking similar is that they're duplicate images created by a gravitational lens, and this is when space-time curves around foreground mass, like the curvature induced by a weight on a trampoline. Usually we can see the foreground mass that is creating the lensing effect, such as a galaxy or a cluster of galaxies, and the light of the background object is usually distorted and there's a time delay between duplicate images. There does not appear to be an obvious foreground mass in front of SDS, nor is the light distorted, but Safanova and her colleagues from India and Russia conducted a detailed analysis of the light from both galaxies. Most cosmic string models are based on straight strings. Safanova and her team calculated that the observed CSC1 galaxy pairings could be duplicated by changing the orientation and possibly the bend of the string. Now, it's not a smoking gun. Detection of a cosmic string is going to require extraordinary evidence, but it does open up a new avenue for those seeking these elusive objects. The article, unfortunately, does not really cover what the cosmic string means because these are very, very far away. So Mm -hmm. I think that we probably just don't know. I mean, I would assume that if it's the width of a proton, hopefully it's something you just pass through. But I mean, a crease from the beginning of time sounds kind of intense.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I guess if there were one close to us, we wouldn't have survived it. Right. Like there's got to be some reason that we haven't seen more of these.
2: Or maybe it's just that's the thing that put us into the bad timeline. Right. We've right? talked a lot about we the bad timeline. It, and now, man. Exactly. We just got to find our way back out and then we can hop back onto the good timeline again.
3: <laughs> yeah. Ever since Nelson Mandela died in prison, or didn't, right? right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and the Berenstein Bears changed their name. Yeah.
3: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link.
1: From the bite, scientists say they've invented a speaker that mutes annoying people.
2: Oh my <gasps> god.
1: Okay. As usual, the title is a bit misleading. Yeah. It's not a speaker that you can point at, say, an annoying person yelling at you, and it just will silence them. We're not quite there yet. And it's not one speaker per se. It's actually like a system of microphones. So first, let me give you a scenario. You're at a coffee shop, and there are a bunch of conversations around you. They all blend together, and you're on a conference call. So what this system is attempting to do is separate all of those different conversations. And as detailed in a recent study on the work published in the Journal of Nature Communications, the unorthodox speaker comprises of what's known as a robot swarm. They could probably think of a better name than that. (laughs) The self-deploying microphones come as thimble-sized robots that communicate with each other, moving on their tiny wheels to different points on their own, like Uh little Roombas, and returning to a charging station when needed. These little microphones partition the room into what they call speech zones, allowing it to track and identify different voices even as they move. So even better, the researchers behind the invention say this pinpoint localization allows them to not only separate simultaneous conversations, but also mute noisy zones or, quote, annoying guys on command. (laughs) for applications like video conferencing or for Big Brother to find out exactly what you were saying in the crowd.
0: Yeah, I mean, imagine there's three or four guys in the coffee shop and they all have their little sets of Roombas and everybody else is just getting crawled over constantly. (laughs) Here's (laughs) an idea, go home. If you're Uh in a coffee shop, it's to be surrounded by people. Don't try Uh to have a conference call in the coffee shop.
1: Like, whoops, I'm sorry, I stepped on your very expensive microphone. Yeah. So Malek Itani at the Paul G. Allen School of Computer Science and Engineering says, for the first time, using what we call a robotic acoustic swarm, we're able to track the position of multiple people talking in a room and separate their speech. So to navigate their environment, the prototype bots use a technique akin to high frequency echolocation. Hmm. And so they move around in the room and that mobility is crucial to the function. Spreading the microphones out as far as possible, the neural network that processes the data can then make more precise calculations. For now, though, the robots are limited to roaming tabletops, as they're only able to do 2D localization space. So nothing. So they're kind of like yet.
2: little spiders that are constantly mm-hmm. crawl. Oh.
1: Mm-hmm. But they're no. I mean, they're on little wheels, so they're not going to crawl on you. At least, yeah, <laughs>
2: they're going to
0: roll uh, on you they're gonna roll,
1: <laughs> gonna bump into your foot like the Roomba and turn around uh, or just keep bumping your foot. Mm-mm. So Yeah, this
0: all sounds like spy equipment. Right. This doesn't remotely sound like, oh, this is it for your convenience? This is for somebody to send their little rolly robots around the room and listen to your conversation and be able mm-hmm. to tell what you're saying, even if there's a lot of background noise.
1: Right, or if we have position mics set up at a rally or something like that already, Uh, we can look on camera, be able to actually see and hear what you're saying. And they're pretty accurate. So they tested them in kitchens and in offices and things. And the devices were able to locate 90% of the time within 1.6 feet of each other. So people could be pretty close to each other and they could still pick you out.
0: Yeah, I mean, what this means is that like my trick of, turn the music up real loud and then whisper to the guy I'm in (laughs) cahoots with, isn't going to work work anymore. anymore. (laughs) All right. Good to know. Uh -uh. All right. Well, that's all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include The Rebel Drone Maker of Myanmar, How the Cultural Revolution Played Society Against Itself, and Scientists Will Unleash an Army of Crabs to Help Save Florida's Dying Reef. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on DamnInteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at Patreon.com slash DamnInterestingWeek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
3: I'm Waisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.